Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 1, Medical Training, Surgery and Obstetrics. The paper, Hygiene, Antiseptic and Aseptic Pedagogy and Practice in British Nursing, circa 1870 to 1900, was given by Claire Jones of King's College, London. So before I start, I just want to introduce the project uh, that both Marguerite and myself are are on. The project is called um, From Matrons to Microbe and looks at infection control in British hospitals between 1870 and 1970. The project team is split between King's College London um, and also the University of Glasgow and its aim is to examine the ways in which changes in infection control and prevention practices shape systems of post-operative wound management and we take as case studies four hospitals so King's College and St Thomas's in London and then the Royal Infirmaries in Glasgow and Edinburgh look at this kind of um, issue during four crucial transition periods. So it's very early days. I started the project in June. So this paper forms part of this um, wider project, and I look forward to hearing your comments and questions after. Okay. So um, the introduction of sanitary standards, antisepsis, and asepsis into British hospitals following Florence Nightingale and Joseph Lister's celebrated innovations has obviously long been discussed. Um, by historians um, and uh, historians have also looked at the changes these innovations brought in operative and post-operative practice. Rather less attention, however, has been paid to the particular consequences of these introdu- this introduction for nurse training and practice. Pamela Wood's excellent 2009 article on surgical nursing in Britain um, during the late 19th and early 20th century reveals that the the role of the nurse was pivotal in preventing wound sepsis and and they played a crucial role alongside surgeons um, well into the 20th century and, and possibly into the 21st. Yet beyond Wood's broad survey, we we know very little how ideas about hygiene, antisepsis and asepsis affected nurse training, how the teaching of these subjects differed between individual hospitals and how they depended on the particular expertise, experience and personal preferences of, of the teachers. But I think without this, our knowledge of um, 19th century and early 20th century medical education is, is incomplete. So um, what I want to do in this paper is build on Wood's work um, on the significant role of nurses um, and also on those very excellent kind of cultural and social histories of medical education of uh, medical students um, in order to demonstrate that nursing education was the first step really in consolidating the role nurses played in infection prevention and management. And these aims fit with the broader project aim in in kind of unpicking how um, the ideas of Nightingale and Lister actually penetrated hospital practice and daily ward routines on the ground um, in these particular institutions. So 
The focus is on pedagogy of infection control at two London hospitals, King's College and St Thomas's. Um, these are used as case studies not only because they have extensive and largely untouched archives in this area, but also because they are among the institutions most closely associated with Nightingale and Lister. So Nightingale's training school uh, for nurses was established at St Thomas's and admitted its first students in 1816. There's some students having some kind of meal in 1890 at the Nightingale Training School. And also um, Lister took up the chair of surgery at King's College and its hospital in 1877. And also it's important to mention that both hospitals were um, considered pioneers in nurse training at this time. Obviously Nightingale's influence not just on infection control issues but also on nurse training. But also at um, King's College, the training school there, first under Sister Matron Catherine Monk from 1885, was admired and also replicated the system um, by other hospitals across the country. So um, just to look at the chronology of how infection control was taught and how this changed over time, I want to look at sort of a few, a few themes. That obviously the content um, of infection control... Um, but, and, but I think what's also interesting, what's come out in, in, in John's paper earlier and also uh, Michael's, is the culture of teaching um, and the paratext of teaching materials, I think, is also very important. So I look at um, syllabi from um, both schools, examination papers, nursing textbooks, and also oral histories from nursing students themselves where they exist. Um, obviously, the syllabi and the examination papers give us great insight to um, the theories and practices that nurses were taught and how these changed. Um, and it, these are particularly relevant when we don't actually have lecture notes from the students themselves. Um, they're not in that great supply at both these institutions. Um, and we can get the, the nuances of the individual teachers, their methods, um, and also from the examination periods, it, we can get a sense of how um, priority was given to certain topics over certain years. And, and the textbooks obviously can flesh out some of these details that we don't have. Just briefly before going into the paper properly after this rather lengthy introduction, um, it's probably worth pointing out that there is no standard training for nurses during this period courses, textbooks, forms of assessment were at the discretion of the individual hospital before a formalised nationwide education system was established in 1919. But nonetheless, we can make some general points and we can say that training typically consisted of three years as a probationer and at the end of the three years um, you became a nurse or if you were, and if you were good enough, retained for ward duty, some went into private practice, um, etc., Set courses of lectures given by um, hospital medical staff at King's seemingly began in 1883, although records only exist from 1891. Matrons, ward sisters and increasingly from the 1920s, sisters tutors taught classes on specific aspects of nursing technique like bandaging and these were supplemented with the more theoretical side from, from um, the medical staff. And probationers were expected to take courses on anatomy and physiology, medicine, surgery, obstetrics, materia medica and elementary science with additional lectures on the side on in dentistry, chemistry and venereal disease. Um, at St Thomas's, probationers took three of these courses per year. Uh, lectures were typically took place at 6pm 
um, allowing probationers to learn their surgical nursing role by working with nurses in the ward and the operating theatre during the day. So work began at 7am and study began at 6pm, so quite a long day. I don't know if you can see that at all, sorry. (laughs) I should have done it as a handout. It's just the layout of um, some of the courses. You've got anatomy and physiology, theoretical nursing, and under theoretical nursing, you can not see, but um, (laughs) it does say wound infection as a part of that. Um, Hygiene is one course, practical nursing is another, chemistry of food, and also ambulance. This doesn't include the surgical nursing course, um, but I'll come back to that. Uh, The earliest record of nursing lectures on infection control topics seems to date from Florence Nightingale herself in 1878, and she complains about a particular lecture on germ theory given to probationers by John Sire Bristow, a physician at St Thomas's. Nightingale's claim that this lecture is objectionable correlates with this already well-established view that we have of Nightingale, that she was kind of opposed to bacteriology and and, and clung to theories of miasma. In reference to this particular lecture, she said, oh, if they would leave the germs alone and see to the air. (laughs) Bristow, on the other hand, was firmly committed to germ theory and... You know, his 1876 book on the theory and practice of medicine um, demonstrates this, as well as his kind of public health role as medical officer of health for Camberwell. But this particular lecture aside, hygiene seemingly formed an important part of nurse training at both hospitals during this period. So obviously this this is where Nightingale comes back in. She's obviously known for her belief in in the importance of hygiene and she certainly went into a lot of detail about this. And this clearly influenced training at St Thomas's, even if she didn't take the teacher herself there. At King's between 1897 and 1901, Raymond Crawford, who was an assistant physician, gave two lectures on hygiene to nurses, and this formed a part of a larger course on surgical nursing. Evidence is is wanting here, but it's probable that these lectures emphasise the importance of personal cleanliness. This is something that Nightingale emphasised both in body and spirit in her address to new probationers. So this is something that Wood talks about um, in her article. She discusses the need for nurses to perfect personal cleanliness before they could even begin to think about practising cleanliness in the wards. And it's interesting that asepsis is not, is not mentioned at this point at all in the sil- any, uh, either syllabus. An important part of personal cleanliness was learning how to scrub your own hands... Wood says a good nurse should take between 10 and 15 minutes to to wash their hands. And in addition, probationers are expected to tie their hair in a bun to ensure no hairs compromise the practice of hygiene and cleanliness. And and there's quite complex detail about even if your hair's too short, this is what you can do to make sure your hair is not going to compromise this. Um, In addition to hygiene, the King's course on surgical nursing in 1893 included two lectures on antisepsis, antiseptics given by George Lee Lenthal Cheetle, who was an assistant surgeon. It's interesting that these seemingly disappeared thereafter, possibly because they became incorporated into other lecture lecture topics on minor surgery given by Albert Carlos, and he's, he's an interesting figure. He was a well-respected surgeon who played an important but hugely neglected role in nursing education um, until he retired in 1918. 
His surgical lectures are extended to eight by 1897, but it's interesting that by this point, um, by 1901, there are a few lectures on hygiene and antisepsis, um, so seemingly because either these topics are incorporated as part of something else or they're not considered um, priorities uh, as, as lecture topics. However, it's from 1902 that we can see that antisepsis and asepsis begin to form a much larger part of the syllabus. Six out of 30 lectures on a Tuesday evening lecture course at King's were centred on some kind of infection control, and four of these lectures took place at the very beginning of the course, indicating their importance to underlie everything else. Resonating with Bristow's lecture at St Thomas's, the very first King's lecture given by physician Norman Dalton was titled The Germ Theory of Disease, and then was followed by other relevant lectures by Carlos, sepsis, antisepsis and asepsis, and this is the first time that asepsis is mentioned in, in either hospital syllabus, wounds and their repair, and also suppuration. In contrast to the preceding period, Crawford's two hygiene lectures took place at the end of the course, suggesting that educators began to place a higher value on the kind of theoretical underpinning as opposed to this personal cleanliness um, principle, or perhaps the personal cleanliness principle became more incorporated into ward work rather than um, um, theoretical um, lectures in 1906, Carlos expands his lectures to include inflammation and its treatment and also septic diseases. And these topics cover both preoperative preparation and postoperative care. And, and we know that these include the necessity of cleanliness and its application in surgery, so they follow in line with earlier lectures. The nature and treatment of care, wounds, um, burns and scolds inflammatory processes, preparation for and after treatment of different operations, i.e. by making the patient scrupulously clean, particularly if you're doing abdominal surgery, by scrubbing the operation room from top to bottom, and by cleaning all necessary equipment. And increasingly from 1908, nurses attested on their practical and theoretical knowledge of sterilisation. So this is just um, a surgical nursing lecture course outline for St Thomas's in 1914 and you can see um, from what I've just said about Carlos's lectures at King's this follows a similar sort of pattern inflammation and um, hospital acquired infections are addressed in the beginning and then they come back to the importance of preparation for abdominal surgery in particular Alongside lectures, probationers were expected to um, squat up using textbooks. At King's, probationers were recommended specifically books for nurses. So we've got John Watson's Handbook for Nurses, first published in 1899. But also they were expected to read manuals for medical students more generally, such as King's very own Carlos's Manual of Surgery for Students and Practitioners, which he wrote with fellow King surgeon William Rose one year earlier than Watson's in 1898. So it's no coincidence, really, that the, the, the first time these publications are, are emerging is the 1890s, and Wood suggests that the increasing publication of textbooks aimed at nurses during the 1890s is, is indication that um, they were no longer passive in their education but that developments in surgeries required nurses to be more active um, and take a more active role in acquiring new knowledge by, you know, independent study and reading. 
Unsurprisingly, the infection control content of Watson's handbook and Rose and Carlos's manual was uh, reflected the hospital syllabi. Watson's handbook contains chapters on inflammation um, and its treatment, um, wounds and their management, and the complications of wounds, including gangrene, tetanus, erysipelas, etc. This covers almost 50 pages out of 500 pages, while the first two chapters of Rose and Carlos's manual are surgical bacteriology, infection and immunity. And it's interesting that because these are aimed at medical students as opposed to nursing students, the surgical bacteriology uh, comes before kind of the inflammation and its treatment. Watson spends more than five pages explaining the practicalities of healing by first and second intention, during which he highlights the importance of antiseptic precautions over asepsis. Like many of um, many kind of um, textbook authors and um, surgeons at this time, he, he emphasised the fact that asepsis cannot be totally relied upon. Trying to create an aseptic environment was often um, nigh on impossible. Um, so in that situation, antiseptic was better than nothing. And Watson justifies his emphasis on antisepsis by praising Lister. So um, I'm not going to read this, but you can, you can see it for, for yourself. Um, this is part of his his um, praising of, of uh, Joseph Lister. He also draws attention to carbolic acid and carbolic lotion in which to soak boiled sutures, perchloride of mercury, uh, as well as Lister's later innovations and adaptations such as mercury and zinc compound um, and a cyanide gauze for dressing wounds. And if, if we look closely at this book, his praise of Lister is, is excessive in comparison to other textbooks of, of this time, which is suggested, which is a reason perhaps why Kings chose to recommend this book, given Lister's surgical chair at the hospital. Watson also outlines underlying germ theory for complications of wounds across 23 pages, outlines putrefaction in quite a lot of detail. But it's interesting that he argues that the, the treatment must be both preventive and curative through cleanliness. So he says, quote, It cannot be too strongly impressed upon the nurse that septicemia and pyemia are to a large extent preventable by strict attention to cleanliness, both generally and locally, in the case of a wound. You might also be... Um, uh, not surprised to hear that there's a strong overlap between the content of these two books, lectures, and also the examination papers that were issued to nurses. Three out of six questions that Carlos set in the 1903 surgical examination are on infection control copy that are covered very well by the book. In 1908, um, candidates are asked to identify the difference between asepsis and antisepsis, and this comes up frequently thereafter. And the following year, in 1909, Carlos asked, how would you prefer dressings, towels, swabs for an aseptic operation when A, an efficient steriliser is available, and B, when no steriliser can be secured? In addition to this increasing availability of textbooks to nurses indicating the more active role that nurses were to take in their own education, the change in the style of examination questions throughout Carlos's lectureship also indicates this move from passive to active learning. So an increasing number of questions aimed at assessing knowledge of infection control change from purely descriptive answers to those that were scenario-based in order to test the nurse initiative 
executive skill and attention to detail. Here we have another Albert Carles's exam question. You arrive at a patient's house in the country and are told to prepare as quickly as possible for an emergency abdominal operation, say for perforated gastric ulcer. A small chemist in the village... Um, but the only dressings available are unsterilised gauze and absorbent wool. The surgeon is expected in two or three hours. How would you set to work to get things ready? So questions become increasingly like this, where nurses are expected to elaborate on um, a, a specific procedure and what um, her role in that. I'm also interested in Carlos's personality and would look, like to look a bit, dig a bit deeper into how he personally had an effect on how nurses learn about um, infection control. He had a fierce reputation for being very strict in the ward and in the classroom. He could easily lose his temper and from the oral histories there's one probationer record him kicking a bucket around the room after someone displeased him. Um, but also there's reports of one he was scared. Um, they were scared of him. Um, he was also viewed as a, as, a, as a father figure, someone that was um, knowledgeable and um, could... Um, assist as, as much as he could. Some probation has called him Uncle Albert, although it's not clear whether they said it to his face or not. Um, um, it's only after 1914 that we see bacteriology as a theoretical subject apart from asepsis introduced into the syllabus um, for juniors at King's. And these are in two lectures by um, J.C. Bristow, who's an assistant physician, there, however, remains no questions on bacteriology in any exam, suggesting that this was something that nurses needed to know, but they weren't going to be tested on it. The practicalities remained still more important. Yet, similar to its precedents, it was expanded upon, and by the 1930s, lectures addressing bacteriology were way extended how they were in the 1914. And it's also interesting that um, Destest Emery contributed the chapter on surgical bacteriology um, to Carlos's manual in 1914. And also preferences and styles of teaching bacteriology to nurses seemingly made a difference too. So sister tutor Kathleen Armstrong, who was responsible for organising training at King's after 1923, said she was forced to drop two lectures on bacteriology during the ten years of surgical teaching by Arthur Edmonds because he used to spend too long on the subject and gave nurses too much to remember and confuse them. And she only reintroduced these topics back into the syllabus once Edmonds' successor, Cecil Wakeley, took over surgical teaching. Just to conclude... Um, it's a very brief overview of some of the findings that um, we've come across so far in this project. Um, and it's demonstrated that while germ theory, the germ theory of disease, formed at least a lecture worth of topics throughout, practical content like how to keep wounds clean and appropriately dressed were always given greater priority. And personal cleanliness became less of a priority following um, after 1902. Um, the inclusion of bacteriology by 1914 to, seems to correlate with the professionalisation of hospital bacteriology certainly by this point King's bacteriologists would test sample from, from ward patients but clearly much more work needs to be done on the relationship between infection control theory and practice in the nurse curricula and not least connecting this with what was actually going on in the wards and particularly interested in how did, this, how did the curricula relate to the kinds of cases that were being admitted given that each hospital um, had the freedom until 1919 to adapt their syllabus. Um, 
And I think that studying individual teaching and ward practices within individual hospitals can help us uncover really what was going on. I'd also like to dig more deeply into the influence of um, pedagogical methods and tools, looking at the paratext of these syllabi exams and textbooks, what does the placement of particular content over others tell us and the relative space it takes up, the placement of images and how this changes over different editions, but also methods of instructions that I haven't covered here, so ward duty example and how did ward duty um, relate to lectures. And also by the 1930s, instruction also included demonstrations, so basic trolley preparations, sterilisation demonstrations, surgical dressing technique demonstrations, and surgical fermentation and skin purification. Um, so that's it. Thank you.